Hello and welcome to The Prediction Is, a podcast that asks, where's my flying car and why is it a bad idea to put spoilers on it? I'm James Tapper. And I'm Mark Milton. And we're here to talk predictions, what's going to happen next week, next month and next year. In each podcast, we talk to someone who really knows what they're talking about to give us a clue about what the future holds. And this week, we are talking to Carol Sikora. Hi. Hello. Hello, hello. So, um, Carol, you're the Chief Medical Officer of Rutherford Health, Founding Dean and Professor of Medicine at the University of Buckingham, Ex-Director of the World Health Organization's Cancer Programme. What have I missed out? <laughs> That's enough. It's enough. Uh, you know, I've been in the cancer business, I guess, all my professional life since qualifying in 1972. And I've been a consultant in the NHS for 40 years. And uh, we've seen some changes, um, changes in how things have happened, how some disappointments. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a registrar junior doctor, we all thought cancer would be cured by 2020. We thought that was the deadline, it will be cured. And here we are in 2020, and it's not all cured. But we can look forward to more changes uh, and more dramatic changes than we've seen in the last years. Carol, could we begin with um, a, a background or an overview of of, um, of cancer and how and ways in which we could be exploring it? Uh, we're all hanging on molecular biology. Now, the Human Genome Project gave us a sequence of DNA we can measure proteins, we can measure the messenger RNA that comes off the DNA to make the proteins. And we all thought that if you just measured the right things and had a massive computer, you'd end up with a sort of an out, a computer-driven algorithm that would tell you how to treat a patient and the results would be fantastic. It's never happened like that. It's partially happened, though. So we've got better markers to determine whether a drug will work or not, whether radiation will work or not, and so on. So we do have better markers. But at the end of the day, it's not a simple process. So you can't feed everything into a computer and get a printout of what to do for an individual patient. That's what's missing. That's probably 10 or maybe even 20 years away. And it'll go with this whole movement of artificial intelligence. Every time I go to a lecture, it's always billed as artificial intelligence and something else like diagnostic imaging or cancer and so on. And I come away profoundly disappointed because none of it seems to be moving. So your original thesis, so so your your thesis, you you feel was correct. It was just there wasn't the computing horsepower to deliver. The the computing horsepower and also the ability to dissect out the tissue in a meaningful way. The problem with cancer, it's localised in bits of the body. You take a sample, but that sample may not be representative of all the cancer in that patient. So you're getting a little snapshot, but it may not be everything. And cancer is very clever. It mutates, it changes as it spreads. And as it does so, it it evolves its way out of, of, of any destructive process, whether it's a drug or radiation. So you get resistance coming. And uh, cancer is like Darwin in disguise. So the cancer cells mutate, they change. And at the same time, only the ones that can grow in an unfavorable part of the body to them will succeed. So that's the natural selection. So the two drivers of evolution in Darwin's theory were natural selection and mutation. And that's what you see in cancer. And that is probably the stumbling block. And now and again, we've seen surprising things happen. So the treatment of testicular cancer in men, uh, germ cell tumors. Uh, when I started as a registrar, 
absolutely lethal. Uh, the mortality was about 90% if the disease had spread after the testes. And more, more than half the men that present, and there were young guys that would come along. I ran the clinic when I was first a consultant at Cambridge. And uh, there was almost nothing you could do. And then suddenly, in the mid-70s, along came from the States, from Indianapolis, uh, a regimen that contained the drug platinum combined with two other drugs. And suddenly everything changed. And over a three-year period, the mortality went down from nearly 90% to only 10%. So in other words, we were, and now it's 98% cure, uh, even if these are spread. And we don't really understand why. What's different about this disease, that chemotherapy doesn't work for breast cancer, doesn't work for colon cancer. So what's different here? And we just have no explanation. And despite all the, the hype about cancer and, uh, you know, personalized medicine and molecular biology allowing us to understand the process of cancer, we still don't understand that fundamental differences between the different cancers. I think there are really four boxes, and looking back on what we did, four boxes of the future with cancer. And the first one is the technology, and that's fantastic. Um, that's where it's all going to come from, the technology, provided it's affordable. That's got to be, it's got to be an affordable technology for us all. And, and that's not just about chemotherapy, it's about better diagnostics, better imaging, better markers, biomarkers that tell us where the cancer's got to in its journey in an individual patient. Um, so the technology box is full. And of course, the, the whole research effort around the world, the whole of biomedical research is mainly funded by cancer dollars or cancer pounds. It's from the charities, from governments. That's the disease they want to know about, even though it may be basic research. And that's fair because the basic research will lead to discoveries relevant to cancer. So the second box is uh, how you treat cancer, how you organize your treatment services. And different countries have got different ways of doing it. Clearly, the way forward is convenient, small centers, part of a network connected, uh, but convenient for the individual. So you just pitch up. It's not in a big hospital. It's a clinic, a day clinic type environment where you can get chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and then you go home and you go home quickly. I mean, you can stop around for uh, counseling or from group therapy sessions. But the idea is if you want to and uh, people like me and grumpy old men like me, they would want to get out quickly. And you can do it in 27 minutes, have a course of radiotherapy, have a course of chemotherapy in around 30 minutes altogether if you don't want to stay. So that's the second box, how we organize ourselves. And um, you know, city center teaching hospitals are not great places to get to if you have to make many journeys to them. So having networks of care run by the big teaching hospital, nothing wrong with that, but having networks of care makes good sense. The, the third box uh, is society and how society interpret the cancer and how much effort they want to go into cancer patients versus, say, cardiac patients or, uh, you know, in patients with infectious diseases. We're seeing it now. I won't mention the virus here, but there's no doubt that's focused people's minds on how you prioritize, not for the same disease, but across different diseases. And then society has to decide how much solidarity it wants. It never, in other words, if we use drugs that cost £200,000 a year, and there's quite a few out there at that sort of price, what do you do about them? How do you ration them? Do you ration them by age? Do you say you can't have this high-cost drug if you're over 70? Or do you ration them in some other way? And um, these are the questions for society. And then 
The fourth one, which is sort of connected, is how we pay healthcare, including cancer care. And there's only three ways, tax, um, insurance, or cash. And there's no other way. I mean, the governments will try and make out there are other ways. They've got better schemes and so on. But the, that, the three pillars of payment for, for cancer care are those, uh, or a combination of the three. And most countries use a combination in some sort of way. In Britain, with the NHS, it's mainly tax, but about 20% privately. And mixing it all up comes to an equation. Do rich patients get better care than poor patients? Almost certainly, but not greatly, because the te- if the technology doesn't work, it doesn't matter how much you pay for it, whether you're rich or poor. So we're sort of all in, a, in this together. So all the, the four boxes, the technology box is the driver for change. The organization depends on that technology box. You know, we can send very large images down the wire now. So you can plan radiotherapy in a remote village in northern Scotland for a patient without even anything. The patient can go to a scanner in a small hospital in the north of Scotland. Image can come to London. You can send back a perfect plan. You couldn't have done that five years ago. And that's only going to get better. And uh, I knew things were changing when I got my first feedback from a patient as a text message about 10 years ago. And a Saturday morning, he wanted to tell me he was not feeling very well. And he just put that into as a text. I've never had that before. So you have these moments. Um, and we've all had defining moments in cancer. So things like the first CT scan I saw, that first text message from a patient, you begin to realize, and then tr- doing planning, radiotherapy planning at a great distance. These things are, are changing the way we do things. Because the changes happen slowly, you don't really see them happening and i look at the young doctors now they've you know you can't be clever on a ward round even though i've been doing it for 40 years as a consultant there's no point trying to be clever because these guys have all got their smartphones they can look up and argue with you with facts on their phone with algorithms that tell them how to treat the patient and uh, that just wasn't possible even 10 years ago Hmm. so I i was wondering when did how long has cancer been with us and how long have we identified it? That's it's an interesting question. So, Mark, uh, the cancer was re- first described in, uh, in, in hieroglyphics in an Egyptian tomb. It was found in 6th century BC. It was breast cancer, and it was described. Uh, obviously, the description didn't call it cancer, but it, it, and people thought it was bad, bad spirits in the body. And of course, cancer in those days, in, in, in the sort of before, um, before Roman times, would all be advanced because there was no treatment. So people would come with fungating lesions. They would smell. They'd be, you know, society would, would wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. There was no treatment. Now Hippocrates himself in in Greece actually operated on some patients imagine having your breast having a mastectomy by Hippocrates it would not have been a nice procedure and have this fungating smelly infected lesion removed so fortunately most patients now have a one to two centimeter of the breast if they get breast cancer and they're treated with surgery chemotherapy radiotherapy it's all a much much nicer uh, experience and not only that, 90% will live and be cured of their disease, which I'm sure m- most of Hippocrates' patients couldn't have lived, and they were just being treated for palliation. Mm-hmm. And 
we still have to have palliation now, but on the whole, when I started as a consultant, the cure rate was about 38% overall. Now it's 51%. Wow. So have been advances, so it's great. Mm. Fantastic. So those four boxes that you you putting things in, we're clearly interested in the podcast in how these things are changing in uh, and what's what's coming down the line, both you know this week, next month, next year, and and further into the future. So, what are the next things that we should expect to see if if um, you know we get diagnosed or if we know somebody who is? So the, the next thing, and we've seen it just in the last few weeks, a few reports, a better generic test that someone's actually got cancer by taking a blood sample and running it, looking for something, looking for DNA change or a protein change in the blood, because that would change the game, because it, all the tests we have to screen cancer uh, have uh, you know real problems. So take mammography, x-raying the breasts for breast cancer screening. Uh, it's expensive, it's cumbersome, psychologically damaging if you're recalled and it turns out not to be cancer, but you still go through that period of worry. If a blood test could be devised that would pick up changes in circulating DNA or protein that suggested, yep, you've got, you're likely to have cancer, that would be much better. You'd pick up cancer earlier. So I think that is the one thing that would change the diagnosis and change the outcome because you pick up cancer much earlier. And even to the point where it could be like how diabetics have a little kit, they do a finger prick and it goes in, they get their blood sugar and a variety of other factors and they go on and adjust their insulin or whatever therapy they're on. The same thing for cancer diagnosis. You just go in every year, have a little blood sample, maybe in a pharmacist, and it would pick it up in a different way. The second thing that's likely to change is this business of medicine, trying to work out the best treatment for the, the, the patient. And uh, at the moment, we do have a series of markers, but they're not very good. They don't apply to 100% of cancers. That will almost come over the next few years. I mean, we were predicting this a lot earlier, but it hasn't happened. But it will happen now. And then after that, you know, the computer is everywhere. Radiotherapy, when I started doing radiotherapy, it's all about trying to get the highest dose to the cancer site and the lowest dose to critical normal tissue around the cancer. And the problem has been that when I did it, there was no computers to start with. So you had to lay on stencils and make Mine all, always fell apart. They looked ugly. I had to smudge them around the edges and so on. Uh, so now the computer does it all. And the next phase is to let the computer work out the best treatment plan itself, not to sort of say, this is what I want to do, plan me one, but say, computer, you're the wise guy, send me the best plan you can do. And a computer can do a million plans in a few seconds. That's the difference between the computer and myself. So however good you are as an oncologist, you're never going to beat the computer. It's like playing noughts and crosses with a computer. The computer will always win in the end of it, provided it has that information. And already there are programs coming to do that so there are going to be big changes with surgery the real question with cancer surgery is how small can you get how least destructive can you be do you really have to have two centimeter tissue around the tumor so if you have melanoma which is the black type of aggressive skin cancer called melanoma because it's, it's black because it's full of pigment uh, the current wisdom is for certain types you excise put a skin graft two centimetres from the cancer, from the edge of the cancer, and remove the whole tissue out, and then put the graft in. 
Well, maybe you don't need two centimeters in some patients. Maybe you only need half a centimeter. And maybe there are ways of finding out which. And the same with lung, all the types of cancer. How small can you make the surgery? Because surgery is a sort of admission of failure. You're bound to cause tissue damage by removing blocks of tissue, whether they've got tissue cancer in them or not. So the important thing is to work out for an individual patient, again, personalizing the surgery, personalizing radiotherapy, and certainly personalizing any chemotherapy or hormonal treatment afterwards. Mm. What's the, uh, I mean, people make early interventions as sort of the optimal in sort of medicine, and people have been discussing predictive medicine and, and identifying genetic predispositions to various diseases and therefore monitoring on that basis. What's the soonest you can identify cancer and treat it? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, if we could have markers in the blood that would pick up cancers at a very low level, that would be fantastic. We don't at the moment, but they'll come. Uh, and at so the moment, those, are those the, the tests that you were talking about, the blood tests? Yeah, of, of exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, at the moment, for certain cancers, that patients come to the GP and it's obvious they've got cancer. So breast is a good example. The problem with breast, we have, a woman has a breast lump. Uh, it, it's only got one in 10 chance of being cancer, but at least you pick up the lump, patient comes off for a breast clinic, that confirms or uh, refutes the diagnosis of breast cancer quickly. Uh, other cancers, pancreas cancer, for example, grumbly, tummy, a lot of gas maybe, <clears throat> and some intermittent pains, Nothing, all very vague. And you go to the GP, you get some antacids, you get some drugs to block acid uh, secretion, thinking for else. And the number of times you have to go for, on average for pancreatic cancer is six times before you're sent off to be investigated. Whereas for breast cancer, it's once. You go with a lump, the GP sends you to the breast clinic. And that's the sort of problem we have in practice. So pancreas presents late, ovary again, because the ovaries are deep down in the pelvis. They cause vague symptoms uh, and they get referred late. So what you need are better diagnostics for the patients where... Mm cancer isn't so easy to pick up clinically. And at the end of the day, can you actually do MRI scans every year on people? That would be the ultimate. And you, you can go and book one privately. There's no radiation involved. But is it wise? Um, people have had these things. And when they go to the, the diagnostic center, about one in 10 have some abnormality, which you've then got to sort out. And often it turns out to be nothing, mm -hmm. just an old cyst, an old bit of TB or whatever. So the important thing is to try and work out tests that have a very high specificity. So you're not just making a lot of worried well people even more worried because that's, that's futile. You want to really pick up those that have got cancer. Mm. One thing um, of the four pillars you described, I was interested particularly in society because that kind of, well, in this country, certainly the market is going to determine a lot of what research is, is, is conducted. Um, and there must be policy instruments which, which also determine that, that through grants or subsidies. Um, what's your macro view of how society, how the planet is addressing disease management and, and investment? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Cancer is predominantly a disease of older life, uh, of older people. And we sort of forget that because the images, the, the films, the, the whole media perception of cancer is young people with children and families. And it's not. Most cancers are in people over, over 60. The average age in Britain of a new cancer patient is 68. 
Uh, obviously, it's swayed by prostate cancer being even older, 74, and breast cancer being younger, 56. So you, the average is only exactly that, the average of the two. And then there's a whole load of other cancers. We're also swayed by the fact there are four big cancers. The, the four big ones are breast, colon, prostate, and lung. And uh, they make up about 65% of all cancers. So although there are many more types of cancer, they're relatively small in numerical terms. So uh, it's clear that in the past, advances have come cancer by cancer. So we've had a movement in prostate, movement in breast, and so on. But the future is probably much more generic. The, the, the diagnostics, the better imaging, and the new therapies will go for a whole range of different cancers. And the world is becoming what we call tissue agnostic. The Americans invented that phrase, meaning that it doesn't matter where the tissue came from, the cancer may be susceptible to the same therapies as other cancers. Although in our minds, we're boxing them into the source that the cancer came from, the organ the cancer arose in, lung, colon, and so on. The reality is a certain percentage of lung cancers will behave like a certain percentage of breast cancers if you only knew how to work that out. And that's the concept of tissue agnosticism. The other concept that's come in the last few years is uh, actionable mutation. Actionable mutations are changes that you pick up looking at the DNA and in, in biopsies that give you a drug target, that give you this, this mutation is making this tumour more susceptible to a drug than a tumour without that mutation. And again, once you start cracking the, 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 each of the individual markers, you then create with your computer a big biodata bank that allows you to work out how best to treat an individual patient. Uh, so that's the way that that's likely to go over the next few years. Hmm. So the... the I'm the, the tissue agnostic thing is very interesting because in I, I know very little about cancer uh, in general, as you might expect that. But the I had completely got the sense that the different types of cancer were very distinct and that, that they didn't share much commonality. But that's you don't that's not how you're describing it. No, um, I, I think it's only since we've had all this molecular biological information that people realize that there's a lot of similarity and mm. or the, the important thing is to work out uh, to, to sort of subclassify. So instead of just breast cancer, there's probably two or 300 different types in there. And although the pathologist looks at the cells and uh, you know, uses very clever Latin and Greek derived words to look at the shapes of the cells and the description of how they look down the microscope, that's going to be superseded by looking at molecular changes, uh, which will be shared across cancers. Some will be unique, some may be single patient unique. And so all those things, you build up a knowledge base that allow you to target the right drug to the right patient. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, well, to, just to circle back onto something you said earlier about testicular cancer. So um, that's gone from 10% survival to 98% survival now. So does that mean that we're likely to see one of the big four, for example, so breast, colon, prostate or lung, as the next uh, uh, testicular cancer, uh, you know, to the, the next cancer to go? Or are they more likely to go all in one 
you know, is there like to be a gradual kind of, um, yes, that's a bad question. I haven't played it very well. We can edit. I, I think, yeah, we'll have, <laughs> we'll have a, a, a molecular subtype, say, in lung cancer that will become treatable. So there is one already, the great example. There's uh, a drug called chrysotinib, uh, which was developed uh, 10 years ago now, and it blocks a receptor that is a mutation um, a, a fusion mutation of, of a gene called ALK um, uh, in, 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 in lung cancer, but only in a very small subset. 4% is the figure. 4% of patients will be susceptible to chrysotinib. The tumor will shrink if you give them chrysotinib. Tablet, one tablet a day. And you know, in my whole career, until then, I'd never seen a single tablet affect lung cancer before, a single tablet a day. And yet suddenly, here you have the drug. It doesn't work if you don't have the AOK mutation. It does if you do. And it's perfect. And there are, unfortunately, it's a one-off example. It's a bit like testicular cancer responding so dramatically to platinum drug. But this is a, a different way of looking at it. This is cleverer, if you like. You pick up the mutation, you have the drug, you know how it works, and you give the drug, and lo and behold, it does actually work. So it closes the circle. Can we do that again for ovarian cancer or, or for, for, for pancreatic cancer or one of the cancers that are more difficult to treat? We just don't know. And uh, it's likely that's the way it will go. Subtypes. Uh, will start being uh, made uh, more vulnerable to the treatments we have in the future. Hmm. You mentioned cancer's ability to mutate and that cancer or breast cancer at any rate, we'd identified from um, uh, Egyptian times, or ancient Egyptian times rather. Um, are these the same cancers and are there new cancers? And how do we know? Well, I suppose you're right. We don't really know, but it's likely they're the same. It's likely cancer is a, a, a default position because we're not meant to live as long as we're living. If you look at it, you know, most cancers don't occur in people under 40. It's, I know they do, and the babies have cancer. It's a tragedy and all the rest of it. But on the whole, people under 40 have a very, very low incidence of cancer. Now, Stone Age man didn't live much beyond 40. He was an old boy if he got to 40. So, uh, but now, of course, people, the average age of death in Britain is in their uh, 80, 81 for men, 83 for women. So when you've got that, evolution really stopped in the Stone Age of the human being. So when that happened, uh, that it wasn't important to live beyond 40. By the time you were 40, you'd had all your children, you'd, you'd got them through uh, their childhood, keep them away from predators, the dinosaurs were coming at you and all the rest of it. And uh, they're brought up and, and society moved forward. We've removed that evolutionary drive uh, a long time ago, which means that people live longer, which is great, but the longer you live, the more chance you're going to get cancer. And if, if we all live to be 200, if we live to be, two, to be 200, nearly everybody would get cancer. It's just a feature of long life. And that's because as we get older, the cells mutate, um, they, they change. And as they change now and again, you get this one cell gets the advantage over others and says, I'm off. I'm going to make a cancer. I'm reproducing myself. Why this happens, who knows? And we really don't understand it. Hmm. Well, given the investments in longevity, uh, well, given that that's what modern man seems to be focused on, 
uh, it seems like your work is becoming more and more important then. Yeah, there's no doubt that the reason cancer is going up so dramatically in populations, it's not, it's not pollution, it's not industrialization, it's simply better health care, better control of other diseases leads to more cancer because people simply live longer. And uh, uh, so it's a good thing. And it's interesting around the world. I spent some time with the WHO and uh, I've been around some of the poorer countries of Africa. And the problem there is they're just fighting infection, tuberculosis, HIV, malaria and so on. And now because in the countries that have successfully fought these diseases, people are living longer, they're now getting a sort of an epidemic of cancer coming simply because the age of the population changes. So if you go to poorer countries, Rwanda, Malawi and those places in sub-Saharan Africa, until 10 years ago, there was almost no cancer in the country. There were, and the treatment facilities are very poor. You can imagine they're, they're not, they haven't got the money to pay for a drug that costs £200,000 a year. There's no question they can't afford it. And it would be bad, bad, bad to do that, bad use of healthcare resources to do that. But um, now they're beginning to see uh, cancer coming their way and, and, can, and cardiac disease. And so they're... Those countries that are most unfortunate are those in which infection is still there. The three big infections are there, malaria, TB, and, uh, and HIV. And at the same time, the cancers come. And uh, Tanzania is a great example. And one of my reg old registrars is the director of the Cancer Centre in, in Dar es Salaam. And it's very humbling. You go there. I went to a conference uh, that he'd organised on the, the the centre's 50th birthday, and uh, I sat on the roof looking down, and you saw crowds of people with their thermos flasks and their little paraffin stoves queuing to get in for cancer treatment. Families sitting there, uh, nice weather, sitting out in the, in, in the garden, they're patiently waiting to go in. And you look at it and you say, well, these people have got enough to worry about with infection, and now They've got cancer. And, you know, you look at the, the three cobalt, old cobalt machines they have there, hopelessly inadequate to treat the volume of people sitting at the door. And uh, uh, it is very humbling to see that. You have to question, why did anyone design it like this? There must be a better way uh, of dealing with cancer so you could actually treat all these people quicker and, and more effectively. Which brings us on to your current work, I guess, because you've done exactly that. You've designed a system to, to help people manage their cancer. Yeah, the, so the, the, the idea is that we're treating people in big city centre teaching hospitals is not the way forward. If you have breast cancer today, if, you, if a woman diagnosed this afternoon with breast cancer, probably about 10 to 20 people this afternoon will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, maybe but normally that's the sort of rate in a day. So what do they have to do? In the first year after that diagnosis, they have to go to hospital or to a clinic about 80 times. So diagnostic scans, blood tests, seeing the oncologists, going for planning, going for chemotherapy, going for more scans, about 80 visits in a year. Now, if you, that, that's a lot of time out of your life. Can you make it easier for people? You still have to have the 80 visits, but can you make it in this network structure uh, of nice places? And, you know, if, if you look at how hospitals are run 
you, you know, you don't check into a hospital, you get admitted to hospital, you get discharged, you don't check out. It's not under your control. And, you know, if you compare the hospitality words with the healthcare words, they're very different. You're in control in the hospitality industry. You're not in control in the hospital world. You're ill and you're all going to be packaged. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world, it's the same. Mm-hmm. You're going to be in a system that's dealing with you because you're ill and you have no choice in it. You just have to go along with it. Uh, so I think trying to make it as convenient for people so it's as least intrusive on their lives as, uh, as one, we can make it seems a good way forward. Carol, in 2003, you brought together expert stakeholders from across um, the, the range of domains that, that are responsible for treating cancer to make predictions about cancer in 2025. And so I was wondering, 15 years on, uh, how those stacked up and whether you, th- whether you think there would be different dimensions that you'd include this, this time. Yeah, it was an interesting concept. We had a residential meeting one night only. We got a group of 50 people together from mainly from the cancer world, but some people not from the cancer world, including a religious leader, a bishop, um, and then a variety of other people from mathematics backgrounds and so on. I'd seen it done before in a more societal, general future look. And it's like, let's do it for cancer. And we got funding for it. And so people had, it was, it was very interesting. And, uh, you know, the, some of the predictions have been true. We published them in uh, a journal of future medicine and you know looking back on it and it's uh, not quite 20 years ago but it's uh, it's going to be 20 years soon uh some of them have come true the ones that have come true most are about imaging uh the fact that imaging is so much better now and obviously the molecular markers for response they're, they're, they're sort of beginning to come the ones that are less easy uh, society and se- level of selfishness in society and how much solidarity you want to have, how much the society will it, willing to underwrite expensive treatments for other people. So if it's for you or your family, that's very high on your list. If it may be some of your friends, they may be high on your list. If it's the man across the road, maybe you, he's in your community and you'd like to support him. But if it's just a random person in Africa, for example, why bother? And that that's the, the problem. So do you think uh, that I, might do you think that may have changed that dynamic with this current pandemic where you know the ethics of a pandemic are altruism? Everybody needs to come through this. Yeah, I, I think all the words, the Queen, uh for downwards, Boris, everybody. Uh the words are about solidarity, about coming together. The NHS has now got saint-like status. It could never do any wrong. It will be changed forever by this, uh, probably for the better, uh, especially if we come out with a, from the whole thing in a relatively short period of time, like three months or something like that. It'll come out much stronger. I think there'll be better public-private cooperation. And uh, I think, you know, everyone will be working together. We'll be so relieved we've got out of it that... Uh, uh, all sorts of things will begin to happen. Um, I, I think that the, the, the problem is that how much do you value life and how much do you value life at different stages? And, you know, the questions like, you know, do you put a 35-year-old woman with three children first in the queue compared to a, a care home resident of 90 who's got dementia? And these are the questions I've always wondered about. I mean, at, at Hammersmith, 
uh, in the clinic, we had a few demented patients who would come for chemotherapy. And you sort of wondered, why are we doing this? Why? They don't know where they, they are. There was one that I vividly remember, a very charming old gentleman who came with a, uh, a Polish carer from the care home every two weeks for chemotherapy. So I hadn't started him on it. Someone else had started him on it. And he really didn't know where he was. He was very confused. Uh, and the, the, the nice Polish carer, uh, we had a chat. I speak a little bit of Polish. My father was Polish. And, you know, we, we just couldn't work out what was going on here. It was, uh, it seemed pointless of the health system taking this guy on. Although you could argue he's a human. We have to treat him the best of our abilities. And so you get moral challenges to the whole thing. And you're right about the current problem. It's focusing it in a very different way. It's formatting the, the problem in a very different way. And people are, are frightened. Everyone's frightened. So they want to come out of this uh, alive and well. And so they are mil- willing to look into their own soul, I guess, to see how to go forward. Do you think there's any prospect of us societally addressing the trolley problem in a different fashion going forwards? Uh you mean the the, the 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 cost of treating cancer? Or... Well, well, the trolley problem was described to us previously by actually an expert in artificial intelligence, looking at ethics and sort of how one made choices and arbitrated the value of life. Yes, I mean, can you can you give yourself a number? Are you worth more than me? <laughs> is uh, is Mark worth more than you? And these are all the questions that you know. Or should we leave it? How much you're willing to pay for it? And we did an exercise of the medical school with students and said, how much would you give me if I could extend your life by a year? And it's interesting responses to that question. So, and does it depend on your age? If you're 20 and you're going to die, but I can give, let you be 21, how much would you give me? If you're 90 and I can make you 91, what, what would what would uh, do? It's a sort of Mephistopheles mm. question. You sign here in blood, and I'll give you mm. something. Uh, and the results are interesting. The young younger people, on the whole, uh, you know, it doesn't make that much difference for them. Surprising older people, who people in the seventies and eighties, on the whole, would like that extra year and uh, be willing to do more to buy that time, but. You know, Dr. Faustus, the Christopher Marlowe play, is is really an interesting analogy to how you ration healthcare in society. Can you allow people to buy their way out in some way, either with money or by selling their soul to the devil? I mean, it's a a curious philosophy in there. And uh, I've always been fascinated by Dr. Faustus, mainly because when I was at um, Cambridge College, I shared a room with him in time, not at the same time, but we had his name was above the plaque outside the room. Christopher Marlowe lived here, it said. Amazing. <clears throat> well, so uh, he was the greatest philosopher and he died when he was 28, which is quite amazing. So yes. that we remember who he was, but it was because of that play and the symbolism in that play. And I think the other uh, person that I have great admiration for is the American. Uh, female writer. Um, oh, and I've forgotten her name. <laughs> you have to edit this. <laughs> Susan Sontag. Susan Sontag, Illness as a met- as Metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's a great book, <clears throat> 10p on Amazon now, and it talks about cancer as a metaphor and all the metaphors we use in cancer, <coughs> including you know, collateral damage, aggressive therapy, magic 
blitz, all these things. They're all military metaphors. And maybe that's not the future. The future is we're not going to blast anything. We're going to just control this disease. And, you know, if it's a disease of aging and the aging process in many people, we just need to keep it under wraps until you naturally naturally come to the end of your life. So if you're 70, why treat aggressively? Just keep it going to your 80, 81 and you'll have had your natural lifespan. And that, that you'll die of something else. And that's a sort of philosophy for the future, I guess. And that happens already. Are there any changes? Go, James, sorry. No, no, no. Go on. Oh, okay. I was going to say, are there, any, are there any changes, though, in the way people are considering it? So the, the 70-year-olds versus the 20-year-olds and the extra year. Is that something that has remained fairly stable, as far as you can see? Or do, you, do people now want, are people more likely to want, the the extra time more people are wanting the extra time they think it's owed to them and i think we are a society here in the west that is uh, averse to death and we don't want to talk about it and we pretend it doesn't exist all the sort of the media programs are aimed at a younger age group on the whole and uh, the older people are sidelined. I remember going to, to Laos with the WHO and uh, I crossed the Mekong into Laos from, from uh, the northern part of Thailand. There's not a single oncologist there. And on the Mekong, they have a problem in that the, peop- the poorer people, the rural dwellers, eat the fish. And the fish contains a, a fluke, a liver fluke, that gives them gallbladder cancer. Very rare here in the UK, but very common there and the, the the cancer ward in in in, in Vientiane hospital was yellow mm. people i mean yellow in the sense they were they had a high bilirubin because they would got blocked uh, blocked gallbladders and gall bile ducts so the question there is how 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 do they manage it people don't get any treatment they stay at home they're with their families and the, and the, you know the accommodation's primitive but lovely and uh, you see, the the the, the dying uh, older person would be lying there. The children, the grandchildren, would be running around playing. The chickens would come in, and the pigs would be making a noise out there. It was sort of accepted that this man was dying, and he knew it, and the rest of the family knew it, and it was a normal process. Whereas here, it's often not like that. It's traumatic, and all this business about DNAR, do not resuscitate orders for older people. If, if an older person in a care home dies, there's no point doing cardiac arrest routines. I mean, you're not going to save their lives. It's, it's sort of intellectual argument for, for, for ethicists rather than a reality in, in clinical medicine. And uh, I think the Laos rural population have got it right, and we've probably got it wrong, and we need to move more in that direction. Uh, and obviously, they need to have a bit of help with the technology. They probably need an oncologist or two for those cancers that you can treat effectively, especially in younger people. Yeah, I mean, it's hard mm. to see how the patient's experience and their families is uh, better in the UK in spite of better medicine. Yeah, it, there's no doubt. The one thing the UK has given the world in cancer, which I really have to mention, is palliative care. So that began with Cecily Saunders in Sydney in South London, uh, in the 60s, uh, the concept of, you know, palliative care in acute hospitals is awful and on the whole because people are not interested. And I remember as a medical student, vivid experience of going around a ward with Mr. Murray. He must long be long dead now. He was a senior surgeon at the Middlesex Hospital, very grumpy old boy. 
and uh, he'd shout at us as medical students. And then it, the patient was on uh, on morphine and was essentially dying, and he wouldn't even say good morning to him. He just grunted and moved on to the next bed. And the patient was sitting up, because everyone had to sit up in bed in those days, and expected to at least have a be talked to, and he just moved on. I didn't want to talk about it. And I remember asking the registrar, why did you do that? I said, oh, the patient got cancer, and there's nothing you can do. He said, well, what, why didn't he say good morning? <laughs> but in those days, that it's it's all very different now. And uh, the hospice movement gave us the way of dealing with people psychologically. And to have um, palliative care consultants is really useful. It's not just fiddling with the drugs and the, 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 the pain control. It's about a lot of other symptoms. But more importantly, it's a whole way of managing where your aim is not to aggressively treat and keep alive, but to, to make sure they can go through the process of the end of life in a in a way that's as comfortable as possible, which is what we'd all want to do. And increasingly, mm. more and more patients are dying at home with cancer, which is great because that's where everyone wants to be. They don't want to be in hospice, uh, but they need the services of the hospice as a backup to allow them to die at home. Mm. Uh, Carol, as you know, now we have a frivolous prediction about something about which you're not an expert. So given that there's no sport on at the moment, I was wondering if you'd like to give us a prediction on politics. So the fascinating thing now is where's the opposition? Uh, I don't understand it. How's it evaporated? So now I once was a member of the Labour Party. I canvassed for Harold Wilson a long time ago. And, okay, my political views have probably changed a bit now, uh, but I think it's encouraging. Keir Starmer seems a decent chap. Mm-hmm. He seems to know what he's doing. And we do need an opposition. And, and I think democracy demands an opposition. I don't even know who the leader of the Lib Dems is. Um, and that's bad for their PR, clearly, if I don't know. But it hasn't I don't so- think they know yet. <laughs> and, and there's no other party. I mean, the Communist Party, I guess. Uh, so what we need now is an effective opposition to call government to account and you know we can see with this current crisis that there is nobody calling anybody to account and it seems to me it's everything's in slight disarray with hundreds of experts being drafted in and no one has a solution Hmm. well so what's your prediction of politics then what's the what do you think is going to happen we've got quite a long time until the next election we have. So I think we'll end up with a two-party race uh, as we go on. I think the Labour Party will strengthen itself. It's got to because it's gone through this disaster over the last few years. It'll strengthen itself and become a, a left-centrist party, which is what people want, like Christian Democrats in Germany. And then it has a chance. Uh, if it can collect the right people in it, it has a chance of actually getting into government. Uh, without uh, ridiculous plans to nationalise everything, to tax everybody through the roof. Although, you know, how the economy ends up over the next six months is is anybody's guess. If we get out of this in June, fantastic. If we can't, then the economy will be just completely shot and recession will be amongst us. So very difficult to predict. Brilliant. Carol, thank you so much for all of you. Sorry, go on, James, are you going to say something else? I was just going to say, uh, Carol Scrooge, thank you very much. Oh, it's great. Technology work.
Thanks for listening to the Predictioners podcast. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe. And if you really liked us, then leave a review too.